You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 259 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Let's close this uh, year with a tradition that we have here on the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. A tradition we have for the last episode of the year, namely some Terence McKenna. And this time I want to play a little mix from Terence uh, talking about alchemy and in particular John Dee. He also discusses the historical landscape of 16th, 17th century Europe. It might not be everyone's cup of tea, but if you are interested in the occult, in esoterica, in Rosicrucianism, Hermeticism and in alchemy, then perhaps this episode will be something you can enjoy. For most people, alchemy is just a term people use to represent something that changes or transcends. But alchemy is a vast, complex and mysterious um, system, uh, as mysterious as any religion or spiritual practice you can think of. Alchemy is also poetic, full of art and magic, and for me, a big part of my life. Alchemy, anarchy, ayahuasca. That's the triple A of my very existence. I've edited together uh, this talk by Terence with some excerpts from the excellent film The Alchemical Dream where Terence McKenna dressed as the famed hermetic magician John Dee strolls through the crumbling ruins and sweeping castle vistas of Eastern Europe discussing the lost secrets of alchemy. Terence McKenna gives us a tour of the last remaining alchemical laboratory in Heidelberg and tells a fascinating story of political intrigue and bohemian experimentation in the 16th century. Now the part from this film that I included in my mix of Terence McKenna talking about alchemy and John Dee is the segment when Terence visits this uh, alchemical laboratory in Heidelberg. Anyway, that's enough of a backstory. Now it's time for John Dee, for Alchemy, and for Terence McKenna. Here's Terence. Let's go back to the climate of the 1580s. And the central culprit here, and the, to my mind, a giant figure casting an enormous shadow over the landscape of alchemy and modern science, is uh, the Englishman John Dee. John Dee united in himself the complete spirit of the medieval magus and the complete spirit of the modern scientist. He invented the navigational instruments that allowed the conquest of the round earth. When Francis Drake sailed up the coast of California, he had navigational instruments that were top secret. The French, the Spanish must be kept away from this stuff. And these were navigational instruments created by John Dee that allowed him to locate himself anywhere on the globe. But John Dee was a man who, uh, on a late summer evening in Mortlake, in his house in Mortlake outside London, uh, the angel Gabriel descended into his garden and gave him uh, what he called the showstone, S-H-E-W in Old English, the showstone. 
And the showstone exists to this day. You can see it in the British Museum. And what's amazing about it is it's a, uh, it's a uh, piece of uh, polished obsidian. It's an Aztec mirror is what it is. And, you know, there was a ruler of the Aztecs named Smoky Mirror. How John Dee got this thing, we cannot even imagine. I mean, he says he got it from an angel. Nobody can really nay say that. However, I suspect that Cortez, on his first return to Spain from the New World, he brought a number of objects with him that he had collected in central Mexico. And somehow John Dee got his hands on this thing and it was for him a um, a television screen into the logos and he used it over a number of years to uh, direct the foreign policy of England he was uh, the confidant of Queen Elizabeth I and he also was the most accomplished astrologer in Europe and he used his ability to cast horoscopes as an entree into all the great houses of Europe the kings and nobles of Europe well he was functioning as an intelligence agent he was a spy for the British crown uh, insinuating himself into these various courtly scenes and then writing back to Elizabeth in ciphers ciphers that had previously only been used for magical purposes he was sending back data on the strength of military garrisons and the placement of fortifications and this sort of thing and uh, but th this was what he was doing in the 1580s he kept the showstone for a number of years and he didn't seem to be able to make much much progress with it. He had other methods too. He had wax tables and sigils, and but finally into his life came a very mysterious character named Edward Kelly. And some accounts say that Edward Kelly had no ears, which indicates that he had had his ears removed for being a charlatan and a mountebank. This was a common punishment in the provinces of England. So Edward Kelly was a very dubious character, I think, uh, for one, one strong piece of evidence that he was a shady character was John Dee was married to a much younger woman named Anne Dee, who by all accounts was quite a beauty. And uh, after gaining um, Dee's confidence as a scryer, uh, the person who could look into the showstone and lay out these scenarios that the angels and the, and the entities coming and going in the showstone were putting forth. Uh, Kelly revealed to Dee that the angels had instructed him to uh, hit the hay with Anne. <laughs> and this was a great crisis in their relationship. However, uh, according to Dee's diary, and so it was done, we read. So, you know, hanky-panky didn't begin with the golden dawn, uh, believe me. In 1582, Anne D., John D., and Edward Kelly set out for Bohemia, and Rudolph, 
the mad king of Bohemia held sway at that time. Now, this is another one of these bizarre figures in the whole story of this. Rudolf uh, collected dwarfs. He collected giants. He had what was called a wunderkammer, a, a, a wonder cabinet. You see, before Linnaeus, before modern scientific classification, these great patrons of the arts and natural sciences, they would just collect weird stuff. And that was all you could say about it. I mean, it was rhinoceros horns, fossil ammonites, uh, broken pieces of statues from antiquity, giant insects from southern India, seashells. All this stuff would just be thrown together in these wunderkammer, these wonder cabinets. And uh, uh, Rudolf was a great patron of the arts. Well, uh, Kelly sent the word that he and Dee had perfected the alchemical process and uh, Rudolf immediately paid their way to Prague and uh, patronized them very lavishly over a number of months, but then uh, they didn't seem to be coming through. And he rented, he ordered a castle put at their disposal in Bohemia, and they still weren't able to come through. The Vonich manuscript figures in here too, because Kelly's entree to D was that he had a manuscript in uh, an unknown language. And I believe that this probably was the Vonich manuscript. The Vonich manuscript turns up in the estate of Rudolf, and the very month that he paid 14,000 gold ducats for it to persons unknown, D, who was always writing back to the Elizabethan court, hounding them to send money, entered in his account book that they received 14,000 gold ducats from an unknown source. Uh, D was able to talk himself out of this alchemical imprisonment, but not before he had written a book called The Hieroglyphic Monad. Now, you have to understand the importance of this. As late as the 1920s in England, in, in the better schools of England like Eton, uh, it, when you studied geometry, you studied Euclid's works. And uh, Euclid's geometry was always preceded by Dee's preface to Euclid. Until the 1920s, every English schoolchild studied this. He was a master mathematician as well as all these other things. This was how he was able to uh, uh, produce this, uh, these navigation instruments. So Dee, while imprisoned in Bohemia, wrote a book called The Hieroglyphic Monad, in which he proposed to prove through a, th a series of occult theorems that a certain diagram, which unfortunately I don't, I didn't bring the hieroglyphic monad, but it's basically the symbol of, you know, the symbol of Mercury, which looks like the symbol for female, but you put horns on it, and then there were some adumbrations to that. By a series of theorems, he built up this hieroglyphic monad and he initiated uh, a couple of young men named Johann Andrei and Michael Meyer 
into the mysteries of the hieroglyphic monad. Well, then he was able to get out of Bohemia and he went back to England. Kelly, who had made much more extravagant claims, Rudolf kept at work on the alchemical opus and Kelly became more and more desperate to escape and one night in 1587 he crept out on the parapet of this bohemian castle and uh, a roof tile slipped beneath his feet and he fell to his death and became so far as i can tell alchemy's only true martyr <laughs> well d returned to england and uh, he was now very old and uh, he died at Mortlake in 1606. Elizabeth died in 1604. Shakespeare was happening. Sir Philip Sidney was happening through this period. John Dee uh, reputedly had over 6,000 books in his library. He had more books than any man in England. He had books, we have a partial catalog of his library. He had books that do not exist now. He had Roger Bacon manuscripts because you see when Henry VIII kicked the Catholic Church out of England, the Northumbrian monasteries were looted by the Earl of Northumberland and uh, and basically Dee was allowed to pick over the loot from these monasteries and there were Roger Bacon manuscripts which perished when Dee's library was burned by an angry mob when while he was on the continent because he was suspected of being a wizard. He was the model for Faust uh, in the later recensions of Faust. And whenever you see an old man with a white beard and a pointed cap, this image is really referent to Dee. Well, Elizabeth died in 1604, I believe, and um, James I became king of England. And James was a peculiar character the wags of the time liked to say Elizabeth was king and now James is queen uh, and not only that <laughs> he uh, he hated occultism he had no patience with the whole magical court that Elizabeth had assembled around herself well now meanwhile in 1606 a very mysterious document began to circulate in Europe and in England called the Fama. This is the first word of a string of Latin words, the Fama, and two years later, the Confessio. And what these were were announcements that an alchemical brotherhood was uh, seeking recruits. It was, these are the primary documents of Rosicrucianism. Now, Rosicrucianism uh, was based on a fiction and a fictional person, Christian Rosencrantz, who was imagined to have lived uh, almost 200 years earlier in the 1540s and been a great alchemist. And it was claimed that his tomb had been recently opened and that there were books inside it which set the stage for the alchemical revolution of the world notice how this occult mind always tries to reach back in time to give itself 
uh, validity. So, uh, and Christian Rosencrantz was claimed to be the author of a series of books, uh, uh, the chief of which is called The Chemical Wedding. What this was all about, I believe, and the Rosicrucian Enlightenment makes it fairly clear, was D, during the period when he had been in Bohemia, had set out uh, to lay the groundwork for an alchemical revolution in Central Europe. And he had made Johann Andrei and Michael Meyer his agents in this plot. And it was a plot, a plot to meddle with European history and to turn the Protestant Reformation toward an alchemical completion they felt that the, that Luther and, and uh, Huss and these people had only gone so far and that the culmination of throwing off the yoke of the church would be the establishment of an alchemical kingdom in Central Europe. The uh, target then of the attention of Michael Meyer and Johann Andrei and a number of these alchemists became the young... Frederick the, he's called Frederick the Elector Palatine. Uh, he was a prince of the Northern League in Germany. He ruled in Heidelberg. And Heidelberg, as you know, is a thousand-year-old university city. And I believe I mentioned that the alchemical press of Theodore de Bry was operating out of Heidelberg. Heidelberg became a magnet for all the occult thinking going on in Europe. And all the puffers and alchemists, the gold makers, the philosophers, the charlatans, they all converged on, uh, on Heidelberg. And uh, Andrei and Meyer were advisors of the young Frederick. And they steered him by a series of political manipulations too complex to tell toward a marriage with the daughter of James I of England, who was named Elizabeth, interestingly enough. So Frederick the Elector made Elizabeth, the son of James of England, his wife. Now, Frederick here made a serious miscalculation because he thought that if James would give his, the hand of his daughter in marriage, that this was his way of blessing this alchemical conspiracy. Actually, what was on James's mind was he was about to give one of his sons in marriage to a Spanish princess of the Habsburg line, a Catholic. In other words, he was playing both sides against each other. He was not giving the green light to an alchemical revolution at all. But um, it was assumed so. Well, then, uh, in, in 1617, 18, Rudolf, remember Rudolf, the emperor? He finally dies at a very ripe old age. And at that time, the Protestant League, which was made up of these princes, of these small principalities scattered across Germany and Poland, they actually elected the emperor. It was not by right of primogeniture, but by election by the, the what was called the Northern League, this group of princes. 
Frederick and uh, yes, Frederick and his uh, alchemical cohorts had done their political groundwork very, very skillfully, and they were able to engineer the election of Frederick to Emperor of the Empire, and he became Frederick the Elector Palatine of Bohemia, and this set the stage for an episode called uh, the episode of the Winter King and Queen, one of the great uh, after Nicholas and Pertinel Flamel, this is one of the great romantic stories of alchemy. This is ground zero for the Rosicrucian Enlightenment. Standing here in the alchemical laboratory of the palace in Heidelberg, we are essentially at the center of the alchemical hopes of the Rosicrucian Enlightenment. It was here in the years before the adventure in Bohemia that Frederick's alchemists, astrologers, and soothsayers toiled directly under the king's observation and control. Here came Michael Meyer, Heinrich Kundrath, the great names of alchemy. It's entirely possible that John Dee was in this room. It's entirely possible that Edward Kelly stood where I am standing now. It's almost impossible to conceive of the hopes and the fantasies and the labors and the dreams that have been generated by and are centered on this room and the objects in it. This is the last alchemical laboratory in the world to fully function before the rise of modern science. And these tools in many ways reflect the internal cosmology of the men and women who use them. This, for example, a typical alchemical distillery is called the pelican. Another example of the colorful nature of alchemical vocabulary. It's called the pelican because it is associated with the myth of a bird which plucks blood from its own breast. The prima materia, feces, black coal, charcoal, salt niter, heated in here, brought to a high temperature, a fevered caloric state, rises into the higher imperium of the vessel, and there, rarefied, it condenses, liquefies, and flows down into the cooler domain of the child of the pelican. Here the essence is collected, the quintessence, and always the hope was that the next experiment, the next combination of materials would yield the elixir vitae, the lapis philosophorum, the completion that the alchemist sought. And so all this fantastic apparatus that we see around us is really not so much in the service of channeling liquids, gases, but in the service of channeling spirit out of matter and into the higher realms where it then can be refluxed, recondensed, and the lapis philosophorum, the stone of the philosophers, the central mystery brought to completion. 
It's the self that we are trying to recover. This is lumina de lumina, the light trapped in matter, the lux natura. This is universal medicine, curing all ills. It is the answer. It is what everyone is looking for and no one can find. And so the alchemist toiled over the centuries, the torment of the sulfur, the torment of the cinnabar, the search for the triumphant chariot of antinomy, the search for the quintessential essence that represented the union of all the world that the alchemists saw around them. And so the alchemists toiled over the centuries, the torment of the sulfur, the torment of the cinnabar, the search for the triumphant chariot of antinomy, the search for the quintessential essence that represented the union of all the world that the alchemists saw around them. It's the self that we are trying to recover. This is lumina de lumina, the light trapped in matter, the lux natura. This is universal medicine, curing all ills. It is the answer. It is what everyone is looking for and no one can find. It seems like it's educating us, but in a funny, funny way. You, you know, if you read Jung on alchemy, alchemy is, is like this. It's a paradoxical realm of, of symbol structures that seem to contradict themselves and myths that don't make any sense. And, but what it always is about, I think, is uh, dissolving assumptions. That's why the people who 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 take it literally are in a sense victims of it because it was not to be taken literally uh, the the intelligence test is failed i've posted the alchemical dream film in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com so just go and check that out if you got the time and want to give this podcast a nice review, then please do so over at iTunes. Here's one I got. Pretty interesting. I actually really enjoy this podcast. My only disappointment is it doesn't consistently have new episodes. In my opinion, it includes interesting topics, guests and music. Oh, Nick O. This is actually one of the first reviews I received many years ago and since it was written I did begin to release episodes once a week and I've done so for a few years now. Unfortunately and ironically reading this uh, review I will now begin to disappoint 
uh, as I won't be doing that anymore. I hope you, the listener, remain subscribed, that you continue to follow the podcast in social media and even better, become a patron. But henceforth, the episodes will appear on a much less frequent basis, at least for the time being. Maybe I'm killing the momentum here, I don't know, but I cannot survive doing these episodes once a week. I have to do other things to put food on the table and those other things are taking up a lot of my time. I've also got a bunch of other projects, creative projects, that I don't have as much time for because of the podcast, because I have to do an episode every week. And doing this every week is more work than you can imagine and I've done it because I love doing it. I enjoy doing it. But recently I've started to feel differently. It has become a chore and if you want some good advice, some good life advice, if something you do starts feeling like a chore, then stop doing it or stop doing it in that way that makes it feel like a chore. So for me, I think this new structure of doing less episodes will be better for me, at least for the time being. I'm not making any money from this apart from those few people who support me over at Patreon and I appreciate it, or from people who send me uh, donations now and again. But I never began making this podcast in order to make money anyway. That was never my intention when I started doing this podcast. And and I didn't even imagine anybody listening to it. So um, it's been a great success if if you look at it from that perspective. So even when the episodes are less frequent, I still hope you continue to be a patron or uh, that you continue to subscribe and follow the podcast in social media. It's not going away, it's just uh, slowing down a bit. And if you still want to enjoy the episodes I've made whilst waiting for new episodes to come out, you can always dive into the archive. I've done 259 episodes after all, so just go to naturalbornalchemist.com forward slash archive. Now for a song I've actually played before on the podcast long ago, but I think it's a fitting song to end this year and this episode. And it's uh, a song from the album Nervous Young Man by Car Seat Headrest. And the song is called Goodbye Love. Freedom is in the mind. your hand upon your belly I don't want to know what's on your mind And you might be the fairest of the blossoms Though you only bloom at night You're at my side in sports and shorts in daytime Yeah, Alex, let our love lie in the light Oh! 